Thanks for listening to show 51 of the C-Suite podcast. I'm Russell Goldsmith, and we are focusing on a huge issue, not just for the communications industry, but for wider business in general. And that is the topic of diversity. And my guest today will be focusing on a number of aspects of that discussion, including gender, the LGBT plus community, and the opportunities available to those of black, Asian, minority, and ethnic backgrounds. Joining me here in the studio are Ian Anderson, Executive Chairman of Cicero Group and newly announced Ambassador for Stonewall. Uh, Stonewall is the charity that campaigns for the equality of lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people across Britain. Alongside Ian is Sarah Stimson, Chief Executive at Taylor Bennett Foundation, an organisation set up to encourage BAME graduates to uh, pursue a career in communications. And we're thrilled that uh, one of the foundation's alumni, uh, Tony Adiola, is here too. Uh, Tony is now an executive at Brunswick Group. And finally, on the line from Toronto in Canada, we also have uh, Lisa Kimmel, President and CEO of Edelman Canada. And global chair of the company's Global Women's Executive Network. So welcome to all of you. Um, I'm going to give each of my guests a chance to talk about their specific areas of interest in this topic, but we'll also be aiming to have a wider conversation about the issues and learnings that can be shared from all the campaigns that they are ambassadors for. But Lisa, let's uh, start with you, given you are sat over three and a half thousand miles away from us here in the studio. Firstly, uh, congratulations on your new role at Edelman um, as global chair of, as I said, the agency's uh, global Women's Executive Network. Now, I'll come on to ask you a little bit about that and the work you're doing there shortly. But I've actually, uh, during sort of like the research that I was doing for this uh, podcast, I've been reading through some of your recent blog posts on uh, on LinkedIn, which I have to say are brilliantly written. It's quite clear to see you're a, a huge champion for uh, gender equity and, and doing some amazing work in this area. And including one of the things that I, I read about was your your trip to the Girls 20 Summit in uh, in Munich. So there's, there's a lot that I, I want to cover off here. But when I was reading through those posts, a lot of it is about giving confidence to young girls and, and in fact, women in, in business too. So my first question is actually what gave you the confidence to get where you are now and have the ability to speak up on, on all these issues? Well, although I wish that my answer was different, I have to give the majority of the credit for my confidence to the many influential men who've actually surrounded me throughout my life and my professional career, starting off with my father, who's an entrepreneur, and he always encouraged me to pursue my dreams, to never give up from a very young age. And he always used to say to me, Lisa, you have to be a leader, not a follower. And since I entered the communications industry, I have had predominantly male bosses, despite the fact that our industry is dominated by women. And these male bosses have advocated for me, and they've given me the confidence to go after my goals. But they've also been tough on me when they needed to be. And I remember being in a meeting with a former male boss, And I said virtually nothing in the meeting. And rightfully, afterwards, he called me on it. And I've never not said anything again. And so once I became a leader, which coincided with my becoming a mother, I recognized that based on the challenges that women do face in their careers, that I needed to use my small soapbox, if you will, that I have to be a role model and to advocate for women to speak up and to have the confidence to pursue what it is that they're seeking. And I really feel that it's important to lead by example for the women, including my daughter, who's 11 years old, um, who come behind me. Do you think you were lucky in terms of those bosses that you've had? I mean, taking Richard as an example, he's got two daughters as well, hasn't he? Three, that, he did, actually has three, three daughters. Three, yeah, sorry. So does that make a difference in terms of 
you know, being a father of daughters, do you think, or, or, or not at all? Absolutely, I do. I think that, um, you know, men who do have daughters recognize the challenges that young girls and women do face, and it's also contingent upon them to advocate and to champion mm. girls and women. So, so tell us about, about your trip to the Girls' Summit then. I know, as I said, we're focusing on, on the comms industry in the main in this podcast, but as, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it's a wider issue. And in, in one of the posts that you wrote about that, you said that um, even though the event was attended by accomplish, accomplished uh, female delegates, um, you wrote that most of the women still felt that they didn't know how to network or how to engage in a conversation about the best way to discuss their projects or how to ask for support in, in getting them off the ground. Yeah, so in June, I was in Munich for the Girls 20 Summit. And just as, as uh, by way of background, the organization and this event specifically is committed to cultivating the next generation of female leaders. And that's done through education, training, and also providing global experiences to increase female labor force participation. So the annual summit is actually held in advance of the real G20 Summit. And young female delegates from 20-plus countries make recommendations to the G20 leaders on how it is that they can increase female uh, labor force participation. And these girls, they range in age between 18 and 23, are already incredibly accomplished. And many of the delegates came from countries like Russia and Lebanon and India, where women's rights are challenged, and yet they had surmounted incredible obstacles to accomplish what they'd already done um, at such a young age. And so to witness their uneasiness and their lack of confidence in themselves was really disheartening to me. And, you know, I had to ask myself, how is it that by their early 20s, women are questioning their abilities and lacking in confidence to pursue their aspiration. And again, this is why I think it's really important that we have to discuss both the cultural and also the structural barriers that exist for women to be successful in pursuing what it is that they aspire to. And I think equally important is for women who hold senior leadership positions that they engage in this conversation and serve as role models to young women. Just just picking up on the on the issue of confidence there. I just want to bring Ian, Sarah, and Tony into the conversation. I mean, we're going to talk about the the uh, the areas that, that they're sort of ambassadors for as well. But um, do you think the issue of confidence is going to be a recurring theme that we're that we're going to see throughout this uh, discussion? Ian. I, I think. Um you know, just listening to Lisa, it's fascinating. I, I sat on a panel that um, we hosted at the time of International Women's Day. I was the bloke on on the panel, and I think it's actually it's an important point to make. Listening again to Lisa there, that that you can't have a conversation without about women without men. You can't have a conversation about men without women. I think it's it's very important that this is very very balanced. But I didn't want to cheer that conversation for fairly obvious reasons, mm. because I think the contours of this conversation are very true, that, you know, if men are cheering the conversation all the time, men want to talk inevitably about what men want to talk about. So I think it's it's important that, you know, that chair is always in flux to get a more balanced conversation. But I was struck when we did our event, Russell, where somebody at the back of the room who, a, a really, really um, high-powered woman who'd been in the workplace for about 20, 25 years, about 
almost as long as I've been in the workplace. And she said, you know what? I think girls, she said, I'm using specifically what she said, um, I think girls put their hands up a lot more in the workplace about 20, 25 years ago. And she said, you know what, I think there's something that's been overlaying um, our conversation for the past few years where uh, an awful lot of women have not wanted to put their hand up for those very, very confidence reasons. Now, there's something that's maybe been going on out there that I hadn't thought about, but I've thought about it a lot since then. And, and actually, each time we all sit down, m- making sure that the, that the conversation is going to include everybody around the table. Sarah, what's your thoughts? From an ethnic minority perspective, when we look at who is entering the industry, one of the one of the reasons that there is such a lack of ethnic diversity in the industry is because ethnic minorities are not aspiring to work in PR. And um, um, it was interesting that Lisa was just talking about role models because that's definitely something that, that the foundation thinks about: is who is there to aspire to be? If you can't see somebody that looks like you, how can you aspire to be that? So to have a level of success, you need to have the motivation to go ahead and join an industry where you might not be represented. And to do that takes a certain level of confidence. No, I I definitely agree with the role model um, example. I think for me personally, I can only speak from... As a, as a black girl, I grew up in Essex and there were I was the only black girl. And I was able to gain that confidence actually quite early. So it depends on background and so many other things. But for me personally, I never felt isolated or alone being in a room where people didn't look like me just because I was lucky, lucky enough to, to, to experience that from a young mm. age. So I think it is, it is definitely a case-by-case situation, but generally I think anyone would feel uncomfortable being in a room with people that don't necessarily look like them or are talking about issues that they're not that engaged with. So from a cultural perspective, it could be harder to lead a conversation when um, you're the only ethnic minority there and therefore the lack of confidence would come from that. So I think there are so many different layers to that that argument and, and trying to understand where that lack of confidence comes from. But from my personal experience, yeah, it, is, it's, it, it can be daunting, daunting, but it's e- definitely easier since I've experienced it myself. Mm-hmm. So. OK, Lisa, tell us about Gwen then. Sure. So in 2011, Richard, as you said, Russell earlier, had three daughters. And, um, he, who, and he's very uh, eager for them to take over the business one day. Um, we established Gwen, which uh, stands for the Global Women's Executive Network. And the objective of Gwen is to increase the presence of women at the most senior levels of our company, while also creating an environment where women are encouraged to lead and be successful. And uh, the communications industry, as we well know, is dominated by women, but not necessarily in senior level positions. And back in 2011, when we examined our global workforce, women comprised 68% of it, yet only 33% of the most senior positions in the company were held by women. And our goal is to get to 50-50 gender parity. And as of July last month, 2017, we have made significant progress. We haven't gotten to that 50-50 mark yet, but women now represent 41% of our senior leadership positions. And in order for us to reach that 50-50 goal, we're really focused on three measurable areas. Number one, building a pipeline for executive recruitment. 
Number two, addressing unconscious bias that might exist through training, uh, particularly of leadership around the world. And number three, advancing our approach to senior level succession planning and career development. I think it's it's great in the the interview I watched that you did with Richard Edelman. It was you know it's all very transparent. But you're talking about getting to that fifty fifty um, split. He you know originally he the target was to do that a lot quicker than than you've achieved. Why why do you think that hasn't been achieved as yet? Yeah. So initially, when Gwen launched in 2011, the hope was that within five years we would get to that 50-50 goal. And we've definitely moved the needle in the right direction. But I think it's key to understand two things. Number one, what drives women to move up and stay at Edelman? And number two, what impacts leaders to um, unconsciously select men over women? And it's really important that we create an inclusive culture that allows for women, but frankly, all employees, regardless of their gender, sexual orientation, age, or ethnicity, to successfully navigate their careers at Edelman. We also know from our employee data that often women in the middle of their careers make a choice for more family time. And we've actually seen a drop-off once women have had their second child. So I think that it's important that women at Edelman not feel that they need to make that choice between their career at Edelman and their family. It's not an either-or proposition. And that's why we're starting to adapt HR policies to reflect this. So as an example, um, we're providing extended maternity leave time in Canada, which I oversee. We now offer a maternity top-up program. We're also allowing for more flexible work relation, uh, working, uh, flexible work situations, mm-hmm. and also allowing women to work from home. And at the end of the day, Our company is only as good as its people, and it's really important that we retain and attract the best talent. So that means that we need to work with women to determine mutually beneficial work arrangements. Ian, we'll come to talk about your work with Stonewall uh, shortly, but um, gender diversity and inclusion is pretty high on Cicero's agenda too. So your group uh, recently signed up to the Treasury's uh, Women in Finance uh, uh, Charter. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what's involved in that and what what that means to the industry here as well? Yeah, so we're the, so far, the only comms company in the city that signed up to the charter. Right. Um, I'm very proud of that um, because I think, I hear what Lisa's saying, but I will maybe talk about some of the, you know, the benchmarks as we go into this conversation a bit more more deeply. But I think we need to be held to a more public test as to whether or not we as companies are doing what we aspire to be doing. So the the, the Treasury Charter basically has kind of three uh, elements. It commits us in any of the signatories to supporting the progression of women into senior roles. It does recognise, though, that firms have different starting points. Yeah, so in my business would effectively be classified as an SME. So, you know, it's important to think about what's actually digestible for any organization. But the third thing that it does is it it requires us to sign up to a public test. Now, we're, we're getting on with agile working. We're getting on with parental leave. We're getting on with a whole bunch of well-being initiatives. But the most important thing for me is kind of what I talked about up front, which is ensuring that, um, frankly, women have more of a voice 
uh, are at the table are seen to have more of a, a voice um, at the table. So there's about 70 or so city organisations that have signed up to this thing so far. Uh, I want more people to sign up to it because... You know, to some extent, it's a bit like role modelling. You've got to put the flag up the flagpole so that people can come and find you. If you haven't put the flag up the flagpole, they don't they don't know that you're there. Yeah, and yeah. that's why I think it's an important initiative and we've got involved. OK, so talked about uh, gender uh, diversity. Um, you uh, recently became an ambassador for Stonewall, um, as I mentioned at the top of the, the show. Uh, so first of all, congratulations on, on that Thank new role. You. you were quoted in a recent article in The uh, Telegraph uh, that was reporting on a 2016 study by Credit Suisse that said that 72% of US LGBTQ senior executives have not come out of the office, um, yet, six, uh, yet over six years, uh, those companies that had an inclusive approach to staff outperformed their rivals by 3%. Now, I'd like to think the, uh, the discussion is more than just uh, profit numbers, obviously, but in that article, you said, and I quote, um, startups and established SMEs are often better able to create dynamic and open atmospheres than their larger counterparts. Uh, they tend to be younger with less old, traditional, entrenched uh, views and cultures to weed out. So that's a major concern if those larger organisations, you know, at those places, LGBT individuals still don't feel accepted. Yeah, so there's another statistic. I don't want to bore people with statistics, but, but basically two-thirds of people that come out at university go back into the closet to start their first job. Yeah, that, that's kind of global evidence. I mean, that's a terrifying number in 2017, yeah. that they go back in having been out. And, you know, um, there's, a, there's an awful lot about whether or not the diversity agenda is a cost for business. Actually, what I've seen is that within many SMEs, this is easier to do. OK, so I'm the boss, so I can set the tone. OK, I, that's somewhat easier. But for big co, sometimes this gets actually really, really, really difficult to do. And whilst there's a lot of support, there's uh, talent, there's HR, there's diversity and inclusion in lots of very, very large organisations. But actually, I mean, frankly, getting somebody to put their hand up as an LGBT person is still quite a difficult mm. thing to do. You know, do you um, how do you want to be in the workplace? Do you want to bring your authentic self into the workplace? And that can be, I think, harder in a larger organisation sometimes than it is in a smaller one where the, the contacts are, are more personal and more deep. Lisa, can you give any comment from you know the North American ex uh, perspective on this? Sure, and also from a global perspective, given that Edelman is a, a global firm. So first of all, you know, really disheartening to hear the the, the stat that Ian just shared around the fact that people are going back in the closet once they enter the workforce. Our view at Edelman is that diversity of all types and inclusion in actually enhances our work culture, and there is so much data that supports the fact that those companies who are diverse and inclusive actually deliver stronger business results. So we've actually established a global diversity and inclusion council that's really there to guide our um, diversity and inclusion mission and to provide recommendations to our executive management team in that regard. Um, we've also established some employee networks uh, following the initial launch of GWEN. And so now we have groups that are focused on the LGBTQ community, the black community, the Latino community, and we also have one for veterans and their families. 
We're also seeing a trend in that a lot of our global clients like HP, like Unilever, are recognizing the importance of diversity and inclusion. And they're also expecting their agency partners to be diverse in their composition so as to better reflect their customers and who it is that they're ultimately targeting so that we're bringing forward communications marketing programming that is reflective of their customer base. Yeah, let me reflect completely what uh, uh, Lisa said from the other end, uh, other side of the pond, if you like. Hmm. Both on the uh, gender balance conversation and on the LGBT conversation and on the BAME conversation, if we're putting together a pitch team that doesn't reflect modern Britain or modern France or modern Germany or modern America, wherever we're doing it, it doesn't land. And actually, when we're trying to host conversations where it's a bunch of straight white men, people are, and I'm not just talking about anybody that's not a straight white man, I'm even the straight white men are saying, um, you're doing that panel, it's not diverse enough, I'm not coming. Mm. And I think just in the last two years, people have got much, much more assertive about this. And I think that's having its own effect. Excellent. Okay, we've got lots to get through on this important topic, um, but we're going to take a quick break, after which we'll uh, come to Sarah and Tony to hear more about the Taylor Bennett Foundation. It's harder than ever to keep track of everything being said in news and social media. It's even more difficult to gain actionable insights that will improve your reputation and results. Karma provides global media intelligence services to help you communicate more effectively. From automated media monitoring to expertly crafted PR measurement reports. Karma delivers what matters. For more information or to schedule a free consultation, please visit karma.com. That's C-A-R-M-A dot com. Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, and my guests, Lisa Kimmel, Ian Anderson, Sarah Stimson, and Tony Adiola, who we are going to speak to now, as uh, Tony is a recent graduate from the Taylor Bennett Foundation and now is in her second year at uh, Brunswick Group. But, Tony, I wanted to ask you a specific question, and we actually have already sort of touched on this earlier, but um, you mentioned before, you know, before, obviously, as a young black woman looking for a career in, in PR... What I was keen to know is when you look at the websites in particular of, of all the different agencies and you look at, you know, there's always that page for the agency teams. And you, so you see all the photos, obviously, of, of all the execs there. How do you do you, you know, when you were looking at that, did you genuinely think there's an opportunity for you there? So before I even thought about a career in PR, I didn't even know what PR was. I was not aware of any of any agency name or, you know, I think I understood PR from like a celebrity lens. You know, they would have their, their public their public relations teams. But um, no, I, I wouldn't have gone on one of those websites. And I think if I did, would I be dis- disheartened? I don't know. I don't I don't think so, because if you look at business in general, you don't see that diversity there. It's not something that's just just exclusive to the PR agency or PR world sorry in general so for me I've never seen myself as someone that's limited I use my differences to my advantage and I think you know if I didn't try and seek ways to infiltrate or enter those areas that aren't typically for me I wouldn't have found the Taylor Bennett Foundation I wouldn't have found how a way of getting on the other side so 
I don't know. I personally, I, I was not this. I, I get the feeling though. You, you come across as quite a confident <laughs> individual. <laughs> so. Maybe, probably. I feel like I'm. I'm quite driven. Yeah. Um, which is why the foundation was perfect for me because it is such an intense program. Yeah. And if you're not self motivated, if you if you're not driven, it will be very hard for you to get through the ten weeks. So. Sure. Maybe maybe that's maybe that's right. <laughs> well, you, well you've, you've teed up uh, Sarah nicely to um, to tell us about the foundation. <laughs> Give us a bit of background. Brilliant. So we have been around since 2007 uh, and we're probably best known for running the traineeship programme that Tony was on. So that's a 10 week programme where we take six black and ethnic minority graduates and give them the skills, the knowledge, the skills. The, the experience and also the social capital that they need to succeed in a career in comms. So by the end of this year, we would have had 170 grads go through that programme and over 70% of those now work in the communications industry. So it's been enormously successful. Um, and at the end of last year, we also launched a mentoring programme. Um, and by the end of this year, we hope to have had 100 grads go through that programme. So we significantly increased our reach and the amount of people that we that we help. When um, Lisa was talking earlier about the kind of business case for diversity and if you look at the reports like the McKinsey report from 2015, which talked about companies who are more gender diverse being 15 percent more likely to have financial turns above their um, industry means and, and ethnically diverse companies being 35 percent more likely to outperform, there is a strong business case for having diverse teams. But more than that, the PR industry is there talking to a range of audiences. How can they possibly talk to those audiences when it's not represented in their workforce? So it's important that PR agencies start to think about how do we go about achieving that? Do you, do you think there's a... It's a bit similar to when, when I was chatting, uh, when, when the question I, I threw at Ian earlier about the fact that all these reports always lead on the financial thing. It's more than that, though, yeah. isn't it? It's about doing the right thing as well. It is, absolutely. There is a moral, there is a moral issue there. You know, yeah. Businesses should be doing the right thing. Why should you not? be having access to your industry yeah. um, so so definitely there should be that and also I think there is a there is increasingly more of a pressure from client side as Lisa mentioned earlier so only three or four days ago Lovano was saying we will not accept agencies on our PR roster unless they can prove that they are doing something about their diversity and that's absolutely the right thing to do yeah I, I totally agree on the business from the business perspective it, it makes only makes sense to have people advising you that have a different understanding of life or different perspective on, on issues, especially when you look at what's going on in the world right now. We are becoming smaller and more connected. There are issues that I've been facing for as long as I can remember that have now been put on the agenda for everyone. So now everyone's been, become aware of these things. They want to now understand what does this mean for us, for everyone else, for you. And that's why people like me, people that look like me and have the same or similar types of background, need to be in those advisory uh, positions. Okay, want to uh, change the topic slightly. Um, quotas in business, yes or no? Ian, let's uh, start with you on this one. Mm, I've definitely been on a journey on this one. There's no doubt. If I think if you'd asked me that question even five years ago, I'd have said no, merit uh, before anything else but I've watched the boardroom debate and I've watched um, how government has wanted to put a lot more pressure on corporates to do something beyond talking about this so I've done a massively screeching 180 degree handbrake turn yes I think we do need to get on with this now not least because there's 
there's real demand. I go back to what I was saying earlier that if I put on a if I put on a panel that is not sufficiently diverse to generate a conversation, people are voting with their feet. But that voting with their feet is not necessarily that investor pressure, you might want to say, um, in terms of who buys communication services, but more wider investor pressure in the marketplace. I don't think is properly being re- reflected as you know as Lisa says as I say we still have a heck of a lot to do as as a company most communications companies still have a heck of a lot to do in this regard so you know what for a while to push through frankly it worked in politics it's starting to work in terms of FTSE and fortune boardrooms um for a while I think we probably do need some quotas Lisa what's your thoughts on that I wholeheartedly agree with Ian. Um, I struggled with this initially as well, but now I'm fully supportive of quotas or targets. You know, I'm generally not someone who believes in imposing regulations, but in the case of diversity in the workforce, given the lack of progress that we've seen, they need to be um, they need to be, quotas need to be established. And there actually was a European Union study on gender diversity that was published last year that pointed out that of the 12 largest European markets, uh, five of them, France, Germany, Belgium, Italy, and Norway, which all do have mandatory quotas for women serving on boards, that between uh, 2011 and 2015, they actually saw high levels of growth in the percentage of women um, on boards over this period. You compare that with a country like Canada where no legislation exists, and an astounding 46% of the companies that are listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange have no women sitting on their boards not one. Like, to me, that is absolutely appalling. And then similarly in the U.S., where no voluntary or mandatory targets exist, um, female board representation at the S&P 500 hasn't increased significantly over the past year, with a woman on less than 20% of those boards. So if women, if if companies aren't going to address the lack of women um, on their boards on their own, then government intervention is required, in my view. Um, there was a good report, a uh, policy report, issued by the CIPD two years ago, which talked about quotas, and I recommend that anybody who's interested in quotas goes and reads it. And there was also a report last year from Ruby McGregor-Smith, who talked about race in the workplace. And their recommendations were that companies um, have aspirational targets for diversity over five years and that they're measured annually and I fully support that. I think there is a resistance in the UK to uh, quotas amongst the HR community. I think probably that will change as time goes on. I obviously run a a scheme which is under positive action uh, and and people talk about why would you have a scheme that's specifically for one group of students Um, and The reality of it is, for hundreds of years, white straight men have had the power in the relationships in business. And to overcome that, we need to give other people the opportunity and the access to to access that power. And then the balance will be redressed. I call it a big nudge. It's a big policy nudge. We don't, you know, um, quotas were introduced in in politics for a while in, in some parties, not all parties. Uh, quotas um, have effectively been introduced in terms of the boardroom conversation. Uh, this is about nudging us up into the right place. Doesn't I, you know? In my view, if we can get to the right place, then frankly, we go back to merit. But 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 we're not in the right place right now. I think I agree with everyone's points about it. Is a great incentive for businesses to actually start um, diversifying their w- workforce. 
but I will have to disagree on the other side and just say maybe it's more of a sentimental or emotive reasoning. But for me personally, I I don't I don't like the idea of being a number. You know, you guys had to meet a thirty percent target this year, and you know I happen to be someone who fits fits that that description well. So yeah, you get you 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 get to come in. For me, I just feel like they. The quotas are not well integrated into business models. I think the business case for diverse diversity is strong or should be strong enough for businesses to integrate things like different uh, recruitment techniques, training, and helping those within the company that are maybe white straight men um, understand that they might have certain uh, cultural biases, for example, and why that might be the reason why the workforce force is is not diverse. Yeah, I mean. Looking at bias is a very good point. In fact, we're actually trying to do that with our business uh, right now it, um, it, because it, you know, it literally reflects itself from the start of the meeting to the end decision point. So, I mean, I think that's an incredibly good point. We just need to get more people to do it. Mm, I agree. Interesting. Um, okay, uh, listeners, question time now. Um, so I've got a question uh, for you, Lisa, actually, uh, from one of our listeners. And it's actually from uh, Judy Gombita, who um, actually put the two of us in touch in the first place. So first, uh, firstly, thanks to Judy for that introduction. Um, but she sent me the following question for you, uh, Lisa, which is in two parts. Um, how would you define the optimum diversity in an employee base? And do you agree that gender equity or balance is a separate or distinct issue from other distinctions, uh, and she's put such as ethnicity, religious belief, sexuality, etc., on staff? What's your thoughts on that? So I don't think that there's necessarily a magic formula to determine the optimum level of diversity in an employee base. What I do think is that the composition of the workforce has to be reflective of the society in which we live. Um, and importantly, reflective of an organization's stakeholders um, and or a company's customer base. Because by having employees from various demographics who also have different perspectives, uh, backgrounds, and experiences, we're able to then provide our clients with diverse perspectives that are reflective of the world in which we live. With regards to the second question um, on whether gender equity is a separate or distinct issue from other distinctions, I don't think that they are separate and distinct. Um, Any workplace should strive for one that celebrates different backgrounds, experiences, and perspectives. And as I said earlier, all employees, regardless of their gender, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, or age, should feel comfortable in their workplace to be who they are and express their viewpoints and beliefs. Ian, you've got something to add here, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's um, so I found myself in this very strange situation about four or five months ago. I was asked to be part of the launch of the Intercom's LGBT group. There was like 250 of us in the room. It was great fun. And you know, I kind of opened by saying, why did it take us all so long to get together? Um, you know, I, you were making a really good point earlier, Lisa, about, you know, the, the fact that... that women are really, really well represented in comms. The problem in terms of senior management is that they're still not there in terms of that representation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are lots and lots of LGBT people um, in, in comms because we're really, really good. Uh, but it's it's still not, you know, broadly reflective of the people that are running the ship an awful lot of the time. So, so 
you know, I agree with that broad point. I really agree with that broad point that, that you know, your offer as a business needs to reflect the society that you're in and provide opportunities, professional opportunities that reflect the society that you're in as well. Sarah. I think that's absolutely true. Also, I would like to think about not just access to the industry for, for women and for LGBT and for, for BAME practitioners, but also increasingly we're thinking about how do women and LGBT and BAME practitioners reach the top of those professions. And increasingly for that for us, that's going to be the focus of the work that we do. So there is an intersectionality between all of those things. And, um, you know, a black woman comes up against different issues to a white woman, for example, and what would, what might those issues be within the workplace? Someone who's black and gay might also have a different set of issues to someone who is white and gay. So th- there are lots of different issues that I think we need to consider in conjunction with each other. There was something that came up in, in conversation when I was uh, chatting to Ian um, when I was doing the initial research for this podcast, and I want to put it to all of you, and that's um, if you're working with an international client and you have to go to a pitch or, or a meeting in, in a country that, let's say, you know, it doesn't quite share the same values as, as we do uh, when it comes to gender, sexuality or, or ethnicity, what happens then? What, you know, what, what's the team that, that goes out there? Well, I'll tell you what happens at the moment from what I can see is... You know, we all talk a good game when we're in the West, broadly, although that's a concept that's um, in movement, I think, right now for lots of reasons. But um, there are not many women on the pitch team in pitches in the Middle East from people coming out of London from comms agencies. And we know why. Um, There are not very many LGBT people on the pitch team in Chechnya right now. And we know why, because it's not safe. And it's actually one of the things I want to get involved in with with Stonewall. So, you know, there is a job to do here. I'm not saying it's safe and easier. It's not easier for a lot of people um, in London or or in Canada or wherever you happen to be right now. It's it's very difficult sometimes to be yourself um, in, in the workplace. But I think there is a responsibility for those of us that are running international businesses to ensure that the experience of working can be as similar as the kind of values that we're trying to operate around diversity at our motherships. And I, you know, if we're really honest with ourselves and look at, look at ourselves in the mirror, I think the client and the money does come before these agendas in territories where... Uh, certainly in the the causes that I care passionately about, um, LGBT uh, issues uh, are are either in a static place or actually are going backwards. But there is reason for hope. I mean, you you look at some of the debate that's taken place in some of the the states in in America, and actually it's been the communications guys who've been advising the top tables of many, many uh, American corporates to say, you know what? We're, you're not going to do business there because it's going to do you damage. And uh, it's investor power more than anything else that I think will move some of these issues on really quickly. Just out of interest, it's, it's related, but outside of outside of the workplace. But with your role with Stonewall, given they do so much within the football community with their Rainbow Laces campaign, what's their view on the World Cup happening in Russia? Yeah, I think that's very difficult, um, and I'm not. I mean, I'm not here to speak for directly for sure. for someone. I, I think it is. I think it is difficult, and I think um, you know they're trying to use their lobbying power really hard into that conversation. Yeah. Um, as a as a passionate gooner, <laughs> I'm afraid I will not be going anywhere near the World Cup in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Lisa, who's probably wondering what, what that means is about being a passionate gooner. Um, it's, yes, it, I have no idea what it, that means. It's it's North London soccer talk. Um, but, okay. But anyway, what, from what, a Scotsman. From a Scotsman. Thank yeah. you for enlightening me. That's okay. What what's any any thoughts on on this whole area? I mean, obviously, you're, you're you know you work for an international business. Yeah, so I think that um, we have a responsibility as representatives of global firms to speak up about the importance of diversity and inclusion. And um, about two years ago, Edelman actually introduced a statement of purpose. And that really helps to guide the kinds of assignments and prospects that we go after. So if we're presented with an opportunity with a prospect um, whose values aren't aligned with our own, then we will, re- we will evaluate it with regard to any potential ethical and reputational impl- implications. And if there is a misalignment, we actually won't pursue it. And that actually has been very helpful for us in determining what, what we go after or don't. Sure. Sarah? Well, if anything, this is a stronger argument for cultural diversity, surely, because you need a wide variety of understanding of experience to be able to talk about the lived experience of being black or gay or, or a woman or whatever and to be able to look at an international market and talk about what the issues might be in South Africa for example would be useful to have somebody South African on your team it's to talk about that. a very interesting market to talk about yes. right now. I believe there are one or two headlines about it. Yes. <laughs> well quite. So you know so I, think... I wasn't sure if you want to go down. <laughs> oh, I, I think uh, Tony and I would very happily talk about South Africa for half an hour actually. Very <laughs> ha- anybody in particular? That... No, no maybe not. Maybe we'll save that for another podcast and we'll We'll invite said agency in to give their well, view. Which one well. is that again? <laughs> I don't possibly say. So, yeah, for, that, for, for those reasons, you know, there is a strong argument that you need to be more culturally diverse to be able to operate in, in international markets. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I want to finish off by giving you each of an opportunity to talk about um, any initiative that you're working on right now. So, Sarah, I'm going to start with you because um, I know you've just uh, kicked off a fundraising campaign as it was um, through a blog post, actually, that I wrote of uh, a previous two time guest of this show, Stephen Waddington. He, he, uh, he wrote about uh, your new campaign. Um, so here's your chance to give it a plug. Over to you. Fabulous. Always happy to ask for money. <laughs> so we are a charity. We are a registered charity, and that means that we have to be funded through donations. Um, and this year is our 10th anniversary, and we are celebrating that later in November. In advance of that, we've launched our 10th anniversary campaign to raise £50,000 by the end of this year. And that campaign will go towards running the programmes that we already run, but then expanding. And our ambition is to expand beyond London into regions. So to do that, we need to raise the cash. So the Just Giving link, I'm sure, will be somebody somewhere around the podcast for people to click on. Um, and we are also recruiting for our next batch of trainees. So if you know any ethnic minority graduates who might be looking for their first foray into the communications industry send them to our website now's the time to apply the deadline is 1st of september so they've got a week i'll put the just living uh, just giving uh, link up but what uh, for the i'm assuming there's a donate link from the website yeah we so, can go to the website and which donate is there. Uh, foundation.org. excellent well, i had to force it out of you there yeah <laughs> <laughs> um ian what are you working on at the moment? So th- th- three things. Um, delighted to be a mentor for Outstanding, 
Um, I think it's an amazing um, organisation that helps uh, big and small businesses uh, with the LGBT and diversity agenda. So um, outstanding. You'll find it on the Google Sphere and other <laughs> favourite search engines. Um, it's really good um, and really encourage people to get involved in that. Uh, secondly, uh, for uh, Stonewall, look out for um, some fresh campaigning that is um, coming pretty soon from them. Actually trying to widen the conversation um, to frankly develop more allies, uh, both in the workplace and in and in communities, to, you know, really supportive stuff for um, allies, which is good. And then, yeah, the final thing is that we've, uh, as I said earlier, we've signed up to Women in Finance. Um, I'd like more people, and certainly more communications firms, to sign up and to, to Women in Finance and put that flag up the flagpole. Very good, uh, Lisa. What's uh, what's the latest plans for Gwen? So similarly on the topic of mentorship, and we talked earlier about the importance of female, senior female role models, there was a study actually that launched recently by Egon Zender, and they found that only 54% of women have access to senior leaders who can act as mentors or um, informal sponsors in their careers. And so one of the initiatives that we just launched uh, at the beginning of August that I'm very excited about is a program called Opportunity Talks. And its purpose, and we're doing it through our internal Facebook workplace page, is to facilitate connections and mentorship opportunities for women throughout the Edelman Global Network. The truth is we have so many impressive female leaders around the world, and this is a way for more junior women to learn from their experiences. So as an example, if you live in Mumbai and you work on our health team and you're interested in connecting with a senior female health leader in Chicago, now you can do that through this community. So um, it's a great opportunity for our employees to start learning from the experiences of successful women across uh, the world uh, at Adelman. Very good. Now, I thought I'd leave the final word to, uh, to Tony, um, as, as I thought it would be good to end the show uh, with some advice for anyone starting out in their careers, um, from someone who's at a much earlier stage in their journey than the, than the rest of us here on, on this show. And you know, I hope I don't get the uh, the ageist cards thrown at me for that one. Um, but Tony, what's your final thoughts on this whole topic area? Um, I think my first and the most important thing to have when you start off in any career, including PR, um, is have a good support system. So a good mentor that you can relate with on different levels. So for me, I have my formal mentor, but I have other people um, in different industries that I look to that I'm like, oh, I, I really want to be like them when I'm older they are the kind of people that I would speak to on a regular and will help me maintain that perspective. So when I go into work each morning, I'm, I feel fresh and renewed and ready to give the best advice that I can possibly give. So I think it's really important to have a mentor and just stay connected in general. I think people are, it's so important that social capital is something that a lot of people can take for for granted. For my background, I don't have, I didn't have that, that kind of, um, network. I built most of my network through the Taylor Bennett Foundation. There was a lot of people that I met and have stayed in contact with and who have helped me through my career so far. So I think it's important to, to remember that there's value in the people around you. And read, 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 stay curious and <laughs> <laughs> be engaged in things that are happening around you. I think it's really important to to understand or remember that you're not the only one living this life. There are other people on other sides of the world that are dealing with different things and I think it's there's a great advantage in having that kind of understanding and being engaged so 
Excellent. Some, uh, very good advice for everyone. Um, Tony Adeolia, uh, Sarah Stimson, uh, Ian Anderson and Lisa Kimmel, uh, thanks uh, for joining the show. Uh, that's uh, that's it for today. Uh, thanks also to Marketeers for hosting us and uh, and for patching uh, Lisa in uh, from Toronto. So as I said, that's it for this episode. But don't forget, you can listen to all previous shows at csweetpodcast.com. Um, and you can also subscribe to the series on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn and now Stitcher as well. Um, so every, every podcast platform that you can think of, I think. Um, and all you have to do is simply search for the C-Suite podcast and you should find us. And if you're on iTunes, as I always ask, please do give us a positive rating and review because uh, that helps us up the business charts and means more people get to hear about these important issues. Uh, don't forget, we also have got a Facebook group and a Twitter feed. Um, that's all linked from the website. So uh, you can get involved in the discussion there um, or, of course, on any previous show. And finally, if you want to get involved in the series in any way, you can contact me on Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith or the contact form on the website. Thanks for listening and goodbye.